Happy Derek Craven Day, Jen. Oh, gosh. What a great day to record about romance. I know. To celebrate. We're celebrating, um, as is customary, <laughs> by talking about romance novels we really like. Amazing. Um, I also, this is fun. I was out at a library in the suburbs yesterday doing like a little talk about romance. And it was really fun. I um, met some of our listeners Love it. Yeah, it was really cool. And um, like some people are just, I'm sure, just like library patrons. And it was terrific. And I, it was funny because uh, Meg, who was one of our listeners, was like, had me sign something. And she was like, it's Derek Craven Eve. And I was like, it is. <laughs> and then I was like, I love that that's like makes sense in our world. <laughs> the best. I mean, what's my favorite thing is then when you get online and you're like, and so many people are like, it's Derek Craven Day. I know. And listen, Derek Craven Day is empirically the best holiday because you are required to do absolutely nothing to prepare. Yes. And then on the day of, the job is to just, like, read a great romance or maybe talk about one. Yes, that's it. Like, that's how you observe. No special food required. No. I tried to really lean into, you know, there are a lot of people who don't like this book, like Derek Craven. That's fine. Oh, I know. Everybody comes through and is like, I, you know, here's what I, Derek Craven's not my favorite. Let me talk about all the ways it's bad. I don't care. Sure. Fine. That's also fine. Whatever you need to do. But just like love romance, right? Don't yuck people's yum. Yum your own yum. Like find what make what do you love? We want to hear about it. Oh, it's the best. It really it is. It is the best. Also, we announced something else today. I know. Faded Mates Live, everybody. Oh, It's happening. I'm so excited, Sarah. Me too. It's going to happen. Everyone, you can head immediately to fadedmates.net slash live. I bet if you click on the chapter title right oh, now, it will, take, it will take you to a page where you can go to the Eventbrite and get all the information. Y'all, here's the thing. Eric likes the fact and I mean, this is cool, empirically. The chapter titles, for those of you who have, who are listening to the podcast in like apps that accommodate this, the chapter titles are often hyperlinked to book purchase locations, Fade Maze Live information, who knows what else. Honestly, I don't know. Maybe he's got little Easter eggs in there <laughs> on other chapter titles. Could be anything. So anyway, if you're ever just like, this part of the podcast is really great, you can just click on the chapter title and see where it takes you. Um, anyway, right now, click on the chapter title and it'll take you to fatedmates.net slash live, where you'll find all the information, including like how to order, how to buy tickets. But here's the deal. We've got a group of authors. We haven't announced yet who they are, but we're going to announce that next week. Yes. A group of authors coming. Uh, it'll be, you know, Fate of Mates listeners who also love romance novels and like to giggle in fancy ballrooms <laughs> in New York City. Um, it's at this, like, pretty swanky hotel um, in Brooklyn. There's a room block available if you want to just make a weekend of it with your friends um, or just with yourself. Take your – you deserve something nice. Um, and then we have the room this year for longer, so there's – We'll do Fade Mates Live, which will be about a two-hour show. And then the room is open. There will be a yeah. signing, a book signing. But also you can just, like, hang out and order drinks with other romance lovers and, like, meet new friends. Sanj, who is on our um, – Our Derek Craven Our Derek Craven episode. 
said that last year she came and then she she stayed out until like one in the morning with a bunch of other like Fade of Mates listeners. And like they just went to a bar and talked about romance novels and had a great night, which frankly, like, I wish that was my life every <laughs> Saturday night. Well, we get to do this a lot, Sarah. <laughs> I know. I know. But I like to talk to people about romance novels. So anyway, it's going to be a really fun time. Um, we're super excited. We're very excited about the people who are joining us. Um, which you'll find out next week. But that's Faded Mates Live. It's happening in Brooklyn again, March 23rd. It's important that you know the date. Um, and yeah, click on the link or fadedmates.net slash live. Yeah, and if you are coming alone, you know, we've been talking up our Patreon. We There is a whole group of groups, a, you know, group of channels about Faded Mates Live, including suggestions about things to do, meetups. So like already, like groups of people are sort of talking about what they might do there because a lot of people might be coming alone. So if you are, you know, kind of not sure about the Patreon, this might be the thing that gets you over into like checking it out because I think it would be a great way to organize your weekend. So. Well, and maybe what we'll do is closer to the date, we'll post on social media or in show notes one day, like, you know, who's running the the Fate of Mains Live meetups. Yeah. Um, but because it sounds like there are a bunch of them. Like, if you're a hockey fan, I saw – did you see this morning? Somebody posted in, like – one of the threads about Veda Mates Live, like she's coming, she's a hockey fan and she's looking for other hockey fans who might want to go to a hockey game. So fun, right? Which like, I love Amazing. It. You should all do that. In fact, I was like, I think I might want to go to a hockey game. <laughs> like, so, okay. So that's that. Welcome everyone to Fate of Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And tonight, today we're doing a read along. First read-along of the new year. This, we're doing a book by Natalie Kenya called A Dish Best Served Hot. And before we launch into this, let me also tell everybody, on March 16th, which is the week before Faded Mates Live, if you are in the Chicago area, I will be hosting a talk at a, the Forest Park Library, and Natalie Kenya and Nicole Falls are going to be two of the authors on the panel. So Because Natalie's a Chicagoan. She, I think, lives... I don't think she, she lives in this Chicago anymore. This is set in Chicago, though. It is set in Chicago. It is? It is. I, I'm going to actually talk a lot about that part. Humboldt yeah. Park. Where's that? It's a, it's a neighborhood in Chicago. So I'll talk about more of that, about the Chicago part of this book in a minute, because it was fun to read a book that was so on point. But... Um, so anyway, if you really like the book and you want to see Natalie and you're in the area, then you can come to this event in Forest Park. I don't have all the details yet. We are, I'm just talking to the librarians there, but as soon as they become available, we will make them public. So um, in this book, we have a second chance romance between Saint, which is I love, and Lola, uh, right? Stop it. The second his name was Saint, and, and of course, <laughs> she gives him the name. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. And I was just like, stop. Game this over. Is, I yeah. mean, basically, there are a number of things that happened in this book, and I was like, this is like pure McLean, like straight into my veins. Yeah, for sure. And so Saint and Lola were like high school sweethearts, but kind of in a secret way, which we'll talk about for plot reasons in a little bit. And then now it's, I don't know, 10 years later, they're both in their late 20s or um, and they like meet again and uh, fall in love again. And this, so it's like, a well, they don't just meet again. Like, yeah, he thinks he, so. All okay. Right. We're going to start here because I think this is a great, this is a great tee up. So yeah, this is a second chance love story. And we can talk about why they didn't know each other, why they weren't like public, public. Um, 
But the most important piece of this is that Lola's family, his, her father and her brother are in prison and they are, um, and they were sent to prison when he, when she was young, when she was like a teenager. And in the sort of wake of that, she decides to get gone and she goes, she leaves Chicago and she goes to California to live with her mother, who is estranged from her father. And it's a, it's sort of, it's sort of like dealt with in the book as like, it was, it was essential that she leave. Like there, there was sort of this sense of like, there was a potential threat, you know, but whatever it was, she just had to leave. Like she had to get, get herself straight, like get herself understood. She had to understand herself. Um, He at the same time, Saint is leaving to join uh, the Green Beret. The army. Yeah. Yeah. So he becomes a Green Beret. Um, and he's doing that for all the reasons that kids of co- often kids of color from you know low income or low income communities uh, who are looking for a way to like expand their possibilities, their opportunities, join the military. And this is because the military recruits people like this to join the military, which is a plot point in this book. I mean, there's also like a family. It's family, right? Yeah. It's kind of clear that, like, this is part of – that it's all sort of – it's packed into their their life in this, like, very small, insulated community. Yeah. Um, and Lola leaves and she kind of – she, like um, – what is it? Is it the notebook where she sends a letter or, oh, like, yeah. it doesn't get to him? Right. So she sends him a letter, but – and it is, like, goodbye, but he never sees that letter. And then she's, like – gone and there's sort of a whisper that like she might have been killed by her father's enemies and so he no one knows like what happened to her he doesn't know what happened to her and then this book begins with her back and when he sees her i mean he's literally (sighs) like it's great he's i mean it's so amazing he like thinks she's like he thinks she's dead and then there she yeah, is. It's like a Derek Craven moment. He thinks she's a ghost. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, uh, so they're both summoned to this. So <laughs> there's a lot going on at the beginning of this book. They're both summoned to this uh, old folks' home where both their grandfathers yeah. are, are you know, residents of this home. And these two dudes <laughs> are, like, shenaniganing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the whole time. They, like... They're basically like frenemies. They hate each other, but they cannot stop messing with each other. And one has gone too far and like accidentally filled some, filled like, I don't know, a water bottle with X lax or something. <laughs> and like, it's just chaos. And so both of, so Lola and Saint, who are like the, in many ways, the responsible children. Uh, and responsible caretakers are summoned to like like a summit about these two old dudes who are just goofy, and um, God Saint looks at her and then, and this and then I will stop. But and then he basically is like, I need to talk to her privately. Pulls her out of the room and just lays one on her, like kisses her so hard. <laughs> so He's great. like, I thought you were dead. I didn't know where you were. I can't even. And what's wild about the writing of this moment is you as a reader are like, 
Lola's not expecting it. So you're definitely not expecting it. And then it happens and you're like, what's happening? And Lola's like, wait, what's happening? Yeah. And you're like, okay. And it's so delicious. Yeah, it's great. Because like, it sort of like takes, it does something that I don't, I don't know that I could name another romance novel that does it quite this way, where it sort of sweeps all the like baggage in many ways, like to the edge of the table, not off the table, but like these two are still so into each other and he is gone for her. What I love about this book is that it is really like, no, it is like I have 700 million things I want to do in this book and I'm going to try them all. Oh, yeah. She's really like cooking with gas. Yes, here. exactly. Like there's no sense. She's all gas, no breaks. Right. So it's like mm-hmm. I've got the warring grandfathers. I've got like Saint and he is so into her and he thinks she is dead. And then it's like the kiss of all kisses. And you know what I mean? Like, so I think that one of the things I really like about this is like there's a, you know, I feel like. If you are looking for a book where there's like lots of conflict and lots of feelings and lots of like people that are messy and know they're messy and they don't want to be messy, but they're like they keep they are like can live with their own mess, but they don't know how to be with someone else. I think that that's what this book is doing so well. Like these characters are so like real to me on the page from the very beginning. And I think that that is like one of the things that like I really found myself um, loving about the book. I think I said already, Mm -hmm. I listened to part of it on audio too. Maybe I was saying that before. So I read part of this with my eyes and part of this on audio. And the audio is also really great because I think there's so much emotion from the beginning. Like just every single one of their interactions is layered with like a million different like kinds of feelings mm-hmm. about the past, about who they are now, about like their responsibilities, you know. And so, and I think in particular, it's maybe a good time to introduce the biggest responsibility that Saint has is that he is the father of a young four-year-old daughter named Rosie. Mm-hmm. And Rosie is going through something because she is uh, exhibiting something called selective mutism. She's not talking at school. And so when she is around family and, you know, kind of like like people she loves and feels comfortable with, she's like a chatterbox. But at school, she's not talking. And he, as a good dad, is kind of like, what happened? Is she traumatized? Did something happen to her and she can't tell me about it? And she's so young. And it's really, like, interesting to see. I mean, and, and again, like, this is in a in a romance, like, when you have, like, a caretaking parent i think that there's a way in which like the the plot with that it becomes a family story and natalie really does that here i mean i think rosie's one of the best kids in romance i've read yeah and i mean everyone knows i hate it when a kid (laughs) is in a romance novel but i did not hate rosie at all like she seemed to part of the reason why let me be clear let me clarify I often hate kids in romance novels because they have no reason to be there. Right. They're just plot puppets. Like, right. They're, yeah, they're just in the way of like what the author's trying to do. But what Natalie does with Rosie is really about like it's so connected to not just family, right? And like his backstory and what they will be together in the end. And there is like a really poignant, lovely moment at the end where like it's clear that these three are a family but also what she's doing like 
even selective mutism feels like it's a piece of their, all of their problem in the sense that, you know, like they, this book is really about people who are too afraid to talk. Yeah. Like to say what they are thinking, where they are, where they are in their lives, what they want from their lives. Right. And it goes all the way back to like the letter, right, that she wrote is, you know, and, and his reasons for leaving. And so um, there's another whole like really heartbreaking part of this story to me is so um, her her brother and her dad, her her dad was like the head of a gang in the neighborhood and her brother essentially joined the gang too. And it takes a while for Lola to sort of disclose or like admit, you know, to the reader that part of the reason her brother got involved with her dad was to protect her. Like essentially he could like run more effective interference in keeping Lola kind of out of dad's sight. Mm-hmm. And so she feels this like kind of overwhelming sense of guilt for the, like the, the life he's had. And now he's been in prison for 20 something years and he's 40 and he's never allowed her to go see him. Mm-hmm. And it's really and we'll talk more about some of this stuff later. But I think it it ties into a lot of the stuff at the beginning. Like Lola has always had something to prove in the neighborhood because she always was really afraid that like and and. You know, Saint, when they were high school kids, like kind of they were had this like it's just the two of us against the world hidden away in hallways at school and stuff. And she thought it was because he was embarrassed to be dating essentially this guy's daughter, you know, or and and he was. And so a lot of the I think the other thing this does, this book does really well in the second chance romance space is when you're reading a second chance romance, you really have to feel like they are different people, mm. right? And that the problems that they had then, they either have to like solve or move past and then like it's a new set of adult problems. And I think very, a lot of people struggle with this. And this book, it's almost like by the end, I forgot that it was second chance. Mm-hmm. Like, right? Like because they are able as adults to kind of be like talk through what they had gone through as kids and now it's like, okay, but we still have this new set of problems. And it, they're not the same at all. We're not the same. We're different people than we were. And I thought it was – I that's, I think, if you're interested in, like, a second chance romance where they are very different people than they were. They have both lived a life, made mistakes, they regret, done things they're proud of. Left town, come back. It's, like, almost funny that, like, second chance is a major trope of this story, but it is not – the major driver of this story. No, at all. This week's episode of Faded Mates is brought to you by the Meet Cute Romance Bookshop and their new podcast, The Meet Cute Book Pod. I love it. You've all seen pictures of the Meet Cute Bookshop on uh, the internet. I'm sure of it because I'm obsessed. It is a queer-owned feminist bookshop in San Diego, and it's the one that has the mural of uh, the giant letters that say Romance Landia. I ordered a poster of that. I'm going to get it framed for my office. It's perfect. Um, so anyway, Meet Cute is in San Diego. It's a place for romance readers to meet up, hang out, and generally get nerdy about kissing books. Um, but as if that's not enough, they now have a really fun podcast called the Meet Cute Book Pod. 
where they chat with people involved with romance writing, reading, and publishing. And so when you're done listening to this week's episode of Faded Mates, you can head over and immediately subscribe to the Meet Cute Book Pod and get that whole thing in your ear holes. (laughs) They also have a website for online shopping. And um, if you can't make it into the store, uh, you can call them and pick, they will pick out books tailored exactly to your romance reading taste. Sarah's like, like, chefs, celebrities, scars. Exactly. Uh, Gravity defying hair. Exactly. Do it. You can find them on Instagram at Meet Cute Bookshop, their website, meetcutebookshop.com, and they have a great newsletter that you can also subscribe to. Thank you to the Meet Cute Bookshop for sponsoring this week's episode. And don't forget, stay tuned at the end of this episode, and you'll be able to listen to a teaser from the Meet Cute Book Pod. This book really is a conflict bomb. Yes, which I loved. Well, I mean, me too. It's so rare these days in contemporary to find a book that has, that does not shy away from like every, every piece of conflict it can mine. And, um, and I think that there's something, you know, we, I said before we started recording, like, it's very clear to me that Natalie like loves uh, like older, like an old school romance. And, and I don't know if Natalie reads old school romance, but if, she doesn't, she should, because like it's all it's all packed in here, right? This kind of I mean, there is a really like mega third act here that almost feels and not because I have Claypus on the brain, but like it feels Claypassian in many ways, right? Like suddenly there's like everything all the threads that have been sort of thrown out in the first two acts begin to knit themselves together in this kind of incendiary thing where there's suddenly like a potential kidnapping. What is it? Is it Hannah who says like you could guarantee like you can you know you can rely on Lisa Claypus for a good kidnapping? Yes, right. So like you like there's a there's a potential a threat of a kidnapping. There's a gunfight. There's a like and suddenly you're like what's happening? This is crazy and amazing and I love every minute of it. And then someone's in the hospital and like there's so much going on. And I think that. On top of all of that, like external conflict, right? That she's had, that Natalie has had to, like, um, you know, she's had to read a, thread a real external conflict needle in order to get herself to this, like, place where, like, everything is dialed up to 11. She's also got this, like, really intense internal conflict between these two, who she's, like, She's taken the finger like over and over again in this book because she clears do they love each other off the table in chapter one. So like, like, are they into each other? Chapter one, that's gone. And Saint, like I said, is gone from her for for her from the jump. And but like the internal stuff here is very much about identity. It's about like, who am I? Am I good enough? Lola has, you know, real a real sense of like having to prove herself worthy, not just for Saint, but worthy for her community, worthy for her friends, like worthy for Rosie, worthy at work. Like, and it's not because people require that of her. It's because she can't get herself out of the mindset, the mindset of this. And when you live this, like as a life, um, not that I've spent a lot of time talking about this with my own therapist, but when you <laughs> live this as a life, what ends up happening is like you close yourself off to other people who love you and who 
might be there for you, which of course he or she does really beautifully with the way that Saint's family kind of accepts her. They sort of acknowledge that she has this, like her family has this past and like, yes, maybe there had been a time when everybody sort of might have judged her for her family, but like, that's not how they feel now. They know how much Saint cares for her. They've seen her with Rosie and she's one of them. But like her inability to trust that is in many ways what fucks them all and then also is so internal. The thing I respect about the book then is that like Saint also has a full set of like internal problems he's dealing with that are really good. Like you could see how they're bumping up against each other. And his is about like being the most responsible member of the family. Right. Mm -hmm. He feels in a lot of ways, even though his, you know, grandfather Benny is still alive, that it is his job somehow to be like taking care of everyone and everything. And there is a big extended family, right? So there's like the siblings and the cousins and the, right? Like, and Rosie and his grandfather. And so he is just a man who is constantly, constantly like carrying Mm -hmm. so much of the burden of like feeling like he has to take care of his family. And that comes along with some guilt of like the years he was gone and felt like he didn't. And so when you pair that with, like, the I should be taking care of everything and everybody with someone who is as fuck you, I won't do what you told me as Lola is, you can really Mm -hmm. see, right, like, that this is going to be something hard because he deeply respects her, right? He loves her. I mean, she's, like, a real social justice warrior. That's what he calls her at some point, you know? He loves her commitment to, like, the causes that she cares for and, and in and yet, right, like, it also literally at one point he has a panic attack because he's so, like, nervous about the fact that there are going to be things happening that are out of his control, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I really respect that, like, you see them in this pressure cooker of, like, kind of the self-imposed problems they make for themselves, not to mention then, like, all the external things that are happening in their neighborhood that are, like, a push-pull on them. And mm-hmm. I think that one of the things I respect about the book is, like, you know, you called it, like, a big conflict bomb. It is. And I think they're not all solved. Like, this is a book no. that is very comfortable with loose ends. And I think, yeah. in a way, I was like, but that's kind of how life is. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there are, lo- you intro- there are so many things that these two are, like, juggling and keeping in the air and, like, worries and concerns about family and extended family and neighborhoods and kids that, you know what I mean, that... You can't wrap all that up with a bow. Their HEA is really about just saying, like, we're committed to trying to do this together. Yeah, we will do this together. It's interesting, right? Adriana Herrera and I taught a class on the romance novel at Yale in September. And when we were there, we talked about – I remember doing the the PowerPoint with her. We were – you know, we were sitting together and we were doing it on the slides and we started really talk about what Happily Ever After means – and um, we netted out at, like, happily ever after means, like, these two are okay, right? Like, they're, you know, you're going to check in on them in 50 years and they're going to be adorable and still, like, fucking their brains out, right? But the, the and, and but you can't solve, you know, right. racism or the world's problems, yeah, gentrification like homeless, in your neighborhood. Child homelessness, right? right. Like, 
you can't, you just can't. And so, but what you can do is leave this community of people on a path towards solving it for themselves. Meaning like, you know, you can imagine, like, I mean, my favorite part of this book, and it's such a like tiny little moment, but is when the, uh, the pop star who grew up in the t- in the neighborhood comes back and is like, let me help you buy this home, this building for a homeless shelter. And I mean, first of all, anytime a rock star arrives on, on base, like, Sarah, Sarah enters the chat. So into it. <laughs> this is this is the second of many moments where I was like, oh, this is basically like written for McLean. But the, uh, you know, he shows up. I entered the chat and I was like, well, is he the hero of the next book? He's not. You know, Saint's brother is the hero of the next book. But I have faith that Natalie will get us there. Oh, yeah. And so, because it's clear that he's, I mean, like, it's all teed up. Of There's course. even a heroine on the page for him. Natalie clearly so, knows how to cook. She knows what she's me doing. Get me in, so, right? I mean, I accept book three is not this guy, but can he be book four is my request. <laughs> um, anyway, but the point is, like, that's a real romance moment. And it's a real happily ever after moment. Like, things will work out and we will all be in a better, on a better path because these two dummies found love. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so I think there's some, like, really specific things that I thought were really interesting about this book that would appeal, I think, to, like, romance readers. So we have skipped over, like, we've heard of talked about the meddling grandfathers. Mm. But I think that they are terrific characters. They're really great. <laughs> right? Both they are. of them. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I really like about it, and it's strong, I mean, you have we have a strong through line of this in romance, I think, with grandmothers, Right, mm-hmm. which is they are like we love them. They're like wise but funny. Like there's a way in which they are kind of past all the bullshit. The main characters are stuck in and can like sort of have those moments of clarity. Mm-hmm. And I think that we really see that from both of them as the book goes on. Is like sort of like their capacity for like grief and sadness for you know kind of loneliness like essentially one of them one of the grandfather's like best friends died and that's when they started like kind of needling each other and it's almost like they just were lonely and these like this is how you find a a buddy you know um and i found that like one of the things is like at the beginning you see saint and lola kind of treating them in some ways like kids themselves like and i think you do feel that way sometimes about your your grandparents yeah. right like now i'm managing this god damn it but then at the end you also see that the grandfathers knew what was going on all along right we're actually in some ways like playing well that's right? my fa- that's one of my favorite tropes like where somebody's been like puppet mastering the whole thing of course right and there was, like, a really cute scene with Rosie, and I guess it was – was it one of the grandfathers? Okay, remember in The Bride where there's a part where uh, Alec asks, like, the baby, like, what's going on? And mm-hmm. she's, like, never talked, and then all of a sudden she just, like, spews out everything that she saw. <laughs> essentially what happens oh, yeah. with Rosie so at the end of this book right? about like, Starbucks yeah, yeah like Rosie is like with her she in- doesn't talk but when she does it's important yes and she's like tells essentially like blabs the whole story about Leo the brother and Sophia <laughs> and the grandfather's like yeah. wait what tell me more so, so cute. it did it really reminded me like it felt there like the that kind of stuff like you said it feels like either Natalie is plugged into like the the ether of romance and understands it intuitively or she like loves these books the way we do because like scenes like that yeah really I was like 
I'm reading The Bride only in Humboldt Park in 2024. Yeah. <laughs> right? Terrific. Yeah. It was awesome. Um, can we talk about the other thing that really I got very excited about? Sure. Which is, and you no doubt were like, oh boy, Sarah's going to love this. But when they have sex and mm-hmm. then they lay afterward and go over <laughs> all of her tattoos. And I texted all of his, you. I was like, come all in. Of his tattoos scars. and scars. <laughs> Listen, you guys, we've had tattoos and scars on our list for interstitials yeah. for a long time because all I want to do is talk about. I would literally read it. And I was like, Sarah's going to love it's this. Gonna, Put it, it in her veins. Absolutely did. Um, it was terrific. There's, I mean, like the un. She oh, has listen. an unfinished tattoo, and I was just like, listen, I'm. I'm in. She's perfect in every way, yes. and I love it. And then he, of course, got a scar. You know, that caused him to, like, become, you know, more committed to the military than he had intended to be. And it, in many ways, like, broke him in a, in a different way. Like, really gave him, I mean, talk about a perfect name for this hero. Like, gave him a real savior complex. Um, which is impossible, like you said, to, to deal with. Um, One of the things I thought was really particularly well done about his military background. Yeah. Is when he's like 17 or 18 and and intending to enlist, she's furious at him. Like she's yeah. just like you're you're a fool. You're just a poor brown kid. The military is just using you. Yes. The military yes. recruits us for this reason. And it's just so like completely just like you uh, uh, and the way that kids are right like just like and you know honestly this I felt like I saw myself in this I can be very much like no right like we're done here I have this one piece of information about you and I know everything I need to know Mm -hmm. Scorpio season and then when they talk about it again and, and it's in this scene right and she realizes that she has the capacity for like holding a lot of these truths at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. That like, yeah, that might be true of the military, but that doesn't mean that he's a fool. Or and that like his hit that he needed to do that for lots of complicated reasons that she didn't understand at the time. Mm-hmm. And that his bravery is is absolute regardless of like those circumstances. And I think it's also then really interesting because one of the ways things get sort of tied up with then his way of understanding her is like he's kind of like you have all these really strong beliefs but like what about what about me what about Rosie right and so I liked that they were I really thought it was so beautifully done the way this conversation about like how do you support the people in your life who have absolute beliefs that you know you shouldn't be fucking with right And how can you, like, let people do the things they need to do, right? And and that, I think, is, like you said, like, the whole conversation in this book isn't, like, do they love each other? But it's, like, how are they going to make it work? And it's right. this kind of stuff, right, that that we see, like, that, that sort of struggle happening. Yeah. I mean, it's – Natalie never has to ask herself, why can't they be together right now? Like, it's clear the whole way through. Um no, you're you're a thousand percent right. And so and I think that one of the fascinating things about this book, and like I said, I do think that it's rare in t- contemporary fiction, contemporary romance in 2024, is that 
the reader, too, isn't sure they're going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. Or how because, they're going to make it. Not because they're right. not, like, great. Like, they're great people and you, you're you rooting for them. But there is a moment sort of in the mix of – and this is where I think she's evolved, that sort of, like, third act gunfight kidnapping, like, that Claypassian third act, right? Like – Often in the structure of older romance novels or sort of, you know, romance novels that do that kind of big set piece third act, my own included, right? The emotional work is done, right? And usually it's like the two of them have like confessed their emotional issues to each other and they are separated for whatever reason And, like, one of them has to figure out their shit, just, like, have a moment of clarity, and then it's sorted, right? But what Natalie does is she flips the order around. So, like, there's this really intense external, like, plot point that puts them all in danger in lots of ways and requires them all to look at themselves, like, more clearly. And then they have the emotional like push pull that really threatens to end it all and it feels fresh in a lot of ways even as it feels familiar i don't think this is like a perfect book but i think this is a great book and i think yeah. it's the greatness comes from if you put a romance in front of me where i am super invested in these characters and really believe they belong together and i'm not sure how they're going to fucking pull it off that to me is like such a a feat Right. Yeah. And and I really that's how I felt for a lot of reading and not just I would say not just how are they going to pull it off, but like individual parts of the journey, too. So what I want to do, I want to talk about Chicago for a minute and I want to talk mm. about because I I don't know if this was Natalie's intention, <laughs> but I found myself having a lot of really interesting thoughts about this book as a foil for like dark romance. So give me a few minutes to roll out my theory here. I'm ready for it. Hit me with it, as they say. So this is a book that is about a a real Chicago neighborhood called Humboldt Park. And Humboldt Park is a kind of a West Side neighborhood that is highly Latin, um, but more Puerto Rican kind of traditionally than um, another neighborhood called Pilsen, which is more Mexican. And these neighborhoods are undergoing a huge amount of gentrification, which is like a part of the story. And that's that's real, right? Like, so these were neighborhoods that were, you know, very much and, – and this is true of a lot of Chicago. But, like, when you're gentrifying a neighborhood that was, like, Ukrainian village, mostly white people, I guess it, it just has a different kind of vibe, right? So this um, – her dad is in a gang, right? Her dad and her brother are a gang. And this is clearly a scourge upon the neighborhood, Right. Mm -hmm. When her dad is notices her or insists that she do certain things like she had to have a quinceanera, not because she wanted one, but because dad needed her to have one to like show off to everybody what a great dad he was. Um, And I found myself thinking a lot that so then like the way and this is kind of spoilery. So if you're going to read the book or haven't yet, I'm going to reveal some things. So she finally is able to go visit her brother in prison which is something she's been wanting for a really long time. I think her guilt about, like, why he was, you know, kind of with her dad and how much he protected her and, right, so she finally goes to see him. I 
I don't know if people, maybe I've mentioned this before, when I was in, in college, I tutored in a prison as part of a class. So I was just like really interested in this part of the book because it's like spoke to things that I know about from my life. And um, while she's there, her dad's like enemy sees her. And this is the source of the like gunfight, almost kidnapping that comes later. I'm not going to really go too much more into it, except to say that this all this entire scene is one that is terrifying and horrible to the innocent people of Humboldt Park that are impacted by it. Mm -hmm. And I found myself really thinking that it's like reading a book like this where you see how regular people are affected by gang or mafia type style violence that made me ultimately feel like it's the reason why dark romance doesn't speak to me and feels hollow. Because I, I found myself thinking, like, at that moment when, like, the bad guy sees her and kind of threatens her, oh, you're, you know, Lola, it's the son of whoever. It's the beginning of a dark That's romance. That's the beginning of a dark romance where, you know, this guy is like, I saw my enemy's daughter and I finally could get revenge. And then they all go out and get revenge and they try and kidnap her and kill her. And it's right. And it's like a whole story about that's really, they kill her whole family in yeah, front of her. Yeah, right? And it's a whole story. Like I did. I almost in my brain like saw that book. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, this is why these books don't speak to me, right? Because the book about Lola, right, being completely terrified in an alley and feeling every hair on her body rise. She knows something is wrong and Rosie is with her. Mm-hmm. And how she, you know, her begging for her life and like, just take me and leave my grandfather's and this little girl, she's four and yeah. the inhumanity of that. And I just, there's no part of me that, and so I, I just found, like I said, I don't know if this was what Natalie's intention, but it felt like a really strong, I don't know, like a forceful repudiation right. of the idea that there is anything like heroic or interesting or good about organized crime and gangland adventures in neighborhoods full of working class people. Yeah, I think you're a thousand percent right. I think, um, you know, there is the the mafia of it all, right? This sort of sense of like the mafia has this sort of glitz and glitter in books that, yeah, I agree. This week's episode of Fate of Mates is sponsored by Megan Quinn, author of The Reason I Married Him. I love that title. Oh, it's great. So we have a marriage of convenience, obviously, right? <gasps> love it. Aubrey is our heroine. And, you know, he pro Wyatt proposed and she said yes. The only thing that really seems to be a wrench in the works here is that uh, she's pretty sure that Wyatt is trying to make her life a living nightmare. So why would Aubrey say yes to this proposal? Well, they need something from each other, Sarah. Of course. It's going to be better something later. But right here at the beginning, she wants the farmland that he owns. And he needs a wife to inherit the family cabin in his grandfather's will. Yes, a meddling dead grandfather. I love the it. The best of romance reasons, by the way. We're going to have to have a whole secondary, not romance science, but romance law. Meddling grandfathers. Sure. It's so appropriate for this episode. Perfectly on brand. But the thing is, it's not just paperwork. They have to convince the whole town. So walking I around. 
around holding hands, yeah. kissing in front of people. He's pinching her cheeks, not those cheeks. And they're forced <laughs> to share only one bed as a guest house on the farm. Everybody's in on this one. So if you love enemies to lovers, small towns, marriages, convenience, forced proximity, the word mine, I know so many of us do. Sure. Uh, this one's for you. This, you can get it in print, ebook, audiobook, or with your monthly subscription to Kindle Unlimited. On select podcasting apps, you can click the chapter title right now and be taken directly to Amazon to purchase this book. Thanks to Megan Quinn for sponsoring this week's episode. I got really interested right around the same point. And while I didn't have the like dark romance moment, I had this, I had a, I got really interested in like the difference between how this story, how this moment gets, gets deployed now versus then right now, like in, in 2024 in contemporary romance. Um, And I talked a little bit about this already. um, But one of the things that I think is so interesting about this is we are seeing what we, what we're, this is Natalie's second book. Yeah. And so I think what we're really seeing is like, she knows what she wants to do here. And like, I don't want to, I don't want to put intent in her mouth regarding dark romance, but like, she has a lot to say in this book. There's a lot to say about the world we live in, about the country, about people, about working class neighborhoods, about homelessness, about gentrification. Like there's so much packed into this book. And she also has such like a clear, deep love of like dialing the emotions up and telling a story that like makes you kind of breathless. And I am so excited to see yes. how over the course of her, what I hope will be a very long career, she in, she threads those two pieces together more and more and more. Because what I, I think, like, there's no question that, like, this is the combo that is going to put Natalie on yes. the map. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because no one else is writing this right now. Like, I agree. I don't think that Natalie was like, I'm going to, like, write in this. But, like, mm-hmm. as a reader – I found myself really thinking, like, when you are reading, for me, like, right, and I have dabbled in reading dark romance. Like, I'm not, you know, saying that people shouldn't read it because I certainly have read it and found, I found the, like, nihilism of that world sometimes comforting in a weird way, right? Like, this is a world where just people are, like, yeah. violent everything's and Everything's bad. And everything's so. bad. And then, you know what Which I mean? sometimes it feels like. In the real world, everything is bad, so you might as well take pleasure where you can. Right, and right, exactly, that these are people, that there's like a a sense of like, and and again, this is, in 2024, I am fighting this feeling that like the, how much of a relief it would be to just like stop fighting, right? Like how scary it is to constantly be fighting, to just like give in to like everything being shitty and terrible. Mm -hmm. And I think the the reason this book was so ultimately hopeful for me is it never did that. Mm-mm. Right. Everything was, is good. Yes. Because you have, regardless of like the world's problems, right. You have people you love, you have family, you have community. If all you have to do is like open your heart to it. Right. Op- and, 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 you know, and try your best to like do the right thing and save kids and right like be good to the people in your community and your neighborhood. And I found it very like I don't know like something in that part. It's fucking messy as hell out there, but it really spoke to me 
mm-hmm. in like you just have to keep fighting. You have to find the people you love and they're going to fight the way they can fight and you're going to fight the way you can fight. And hopefully you're just like moving the needle. And mm-hmm. that felt very real to me in a way that um, very like of the moment, like this is a book that is saying the world has real problems mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have a responsibility try in whatever way we can to like address them Mm -hmm. and i i found that very i don't know like i ultimately this is like one of the most hopeful romances i've ever read even though i spent most of it being like how the fuck are they gonna make this work yeah well i mean that's why it was so fun to read yeah um i also think that there's something really powerful that she's saying about like you know i think a lot of god was it the year of the election. I don't even know. A while back, there was this great tweet uh, that somebody tweeted and it was like, you cannot pull on every thread of the fabric, right? Like we are trying to unravel patriarchy and racism and, you know, capitalism and all the things, right? At once. And you cannot unravel, at, you cannot pull on every thread. You just, it's just, it's not possible. Right. And this tweet, and I wish I could exactly remember the phrasing because it was so perfect, but it was basically like, so you pull on your thread and you trust that all around the the fabric, other people are pulling on their part of the fabric, right? And so in the end, we get closer to unraveling it. And I think that there's something really powerful, a powerful message in this book about, you know, Obviously, Lola is, she is in many ways a social justice warrior, right? Like she sees, she sees, um, you know, an infraction or an indignation and she immediately like hackles up. She fights, right? She's a lioness and she's referred to that way the whole time throughout the whole book, right? Name, right? Name is Destiny. Name is Destiny. So, um, but the... What's really fascinating about this book to me is that Natalie's also saying, like, but we don't all have to do that. And also, sometimes doing that isn't the right path, right? Like, if Lola could focus a little more, like, maybe she would be in, like, a steadier place, right? If, if... But each person sort of gets their chance in this book to sort of show how they're pulling on their part of the thread. Again, right. toward this, what, what you were talking about earlier, this sort of like not utopian ideal, but like toward like us all being on a better path. And I think there was something very like powerful about that, reading that in February of 2024, like where you feel like I have to pull on every thread. And it's like, well, no, you have to pull with intent. Can I talk about one of my other favorite parts of this book, which is not mm-hmm. related to all of this big, heavy stuff? Although I guess it kind of is. So we talked about one night stands a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about the one night stands where like it all works out, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah I yeah, really I know about. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Saint's daughter Rosie is. I mean, he's like a single dad. Um, his wife died in an accident. Um, and it's just teed up that way, like yes, at the beginning of the book. Like she from died the very in an beginning. Accident. She died in an accident, and so you know you get this. And and Saint had been away when she was born, or you know, like sort of in the army doing army. Yeah, things. none of it's clear. Mother, I'm in army. Sorry, that was a quote from Rusty Roman. Anyway. <laughs> 
so he's at army and um now he's like sort of single dadding and there's ways in which like there's this really tender scene where he's doing her hair <gasps> possibly God. the best scene of the book wait can we talk about that scene first and then we'll get back to what you're about to talk about so Rosie has like gotten herself together for the day and she's dressed the way she thinks that Lola is, right? She dresses like Lola. It's, it's so, so cute. cute. She has her hair and she insists yes. that he do her hair. Yes. The way Lola had her hair the last, last time. time I saw her. Right, like braided, I think, or something. And then Lola shows up and her hair's different. And Rosie is like, okay, well, now I need to go change my clothes and that you need to do my hair again. Which is the most four-year-old. Yes. Like <laughs> There are moments so where Rosie feels like she's like 16. Yeah. This is like Rosie's it's the four. most four-year-old moment for Rosie in the whole book. It is so stinking cute. And he and she's like watching him do her hair. Lola's watching Saint do Rosie's hair and is like getting turned on and she's like, this is so inappropriate. It's so it's, cute though. It is a great he's like it is a great you know, it's that like oh, anytime a romance hero is a great dad. Stop it. Amazing. It's just like yeah. Ovary explosion. Yeah, I don't know. Right. It's just so wrong. It's like those but Instagrams like, where you see Mr. The Rock doing a tea party with his daughter. Okay, fine. This is this is because of patriarchy, everyone. It's because <laughs> literally the bar is on the floor for men to parent. But it's great. It is great. It's, it's a, great. He, he is such a great dad. But then what you find out is he had a one-night stand with Rosie's mom. And she is gets pregnant. And he agrees like that he's like, we should get married. And then he's like off at army, and he barely. By the way, this is like a real thing that yes, happens. No, yes, I mean, yes, I, not quite so you know perfectly in a romance novel, but like, yeah, I know somebody who like enlisted right after nine eleven, like had like met a girl when he was like right before he was deployed, and then like they got married while he was deployed, like yeah, and it, it's. This is a real thing. Yeah, yeah. And so the thing that he is so guilty, he feels this incredible amount of guilt about the fact that one day Rosie is going to have questions about her mother and what kind of person she was. Oh, and Saint doesn't know. It is. Moment. And this is the thing about this book. Like th- it has these like pure romance moments where you really, it's like, I, I was, it was like this. His grief at, like, I am not going to be able to tell my daughter about her mother because I didn't know her either. It laid me out. It really it was a did. a moment. And it's, like, three paragraphs. It's, like, nothing. And it's so powerful. Yes. A tremendous moment. Yeah. yeah that's it. It's just, like, the – the this book has such – like that's it. These like real power moments where you really yeah. see that like Natalie knows what's what. Well, we talk about it all the time. It's like you can you can see like where the the like engine is revving, mm-hmm. right? And it's like there you see you see like the horsepower. It's gr- I mean it, it's terrific. She's taking also like romance tropes and then showing. But what if it's like a, a, a the failing one night stand and the impact that has on you. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Blue Box Press, publishers of Larissa Ione's Legacy of Temptation. So everybody, if you were a fan of the Demonica series back in the day, which we all were, this is a new like series based in that world. It's 30 years later. 
Um, and instead of the demons and angels and the children of the four horsemen of the apocalypse being secret, it's all out in the open and in to like sort of control these these populations. There's these two rival agencies. The Aegis hates demons and then the Demon Activity Response Team or DART. And these two organizations have to like work together and Eva who works at Aegis and Logan who works at DART are going to have this little exchange program and all they need to do is like keep it together and Eva will get a nice promotion. Logan will just go back to like avoiding everyone at Aegis that he hates but instead they are thrown into a huge uh, problem when an old enemy rises from the ashes of Reaper. So they find themselves giving into temptation for each other, even as they are forced to sacrifice the things and people they love the most. Love it. This one is for anybody who loves paranormal romance or fantasy romance, anybody who loves enemies to lovers, heroines in danger, demons and angels. Um, and Larissa Ione always delivers on big feelings and big conflict. If you want to read Legacy of Temptation, you can do that right now in print or ebook. And in select podcasting apps, you can just click directly on the chapter title right now and you'll be taken to purchase the book and read it right away, which I'm sure you want to do. Thanks to Blue Box Press and Larissa Ione for sponsoring this week's episode. I just want to shout out this one's also for the Curvy Girls. Oh, yeah. Like, Lola is not a small person. She is tall. She is incredibly curvy. She is, um, she has been like really judged for her body size for much of her life. Um, and it has in it the way, I mean, I love, as somebody who is similarly sized, I love, I love it when a hero is like gone for you, but also you're still aware of like, I don't, I am, I have all of the baggage that I have grown up with in this body. And, um, I think, you know, Natalie does that really beautifully too, like really nails the conflicting, like complex emotions that come with, he wants to touch me. He wants to like, love me. He wants to hold me. He wants to be with me, but I'm not that is not like a natural comfort for me. I really, I really like this book a lot. I, I think that's clear. I know I'm so excited for the next one. One of those things when you get a young new author who really oh, just like the best. I don't know, like it's like raw batting power. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that's how it feels. And like you know, for sure, I will say like there were some. Pacing wise, there were times I like a lot of things happen in the third act. You know what I mean? Like, hey, listen, Clay Passion. Yes, that's a great way of saying it. But I really found myself so in love with these characters. And, you know, having a, a as you said, a child in a book be such a very well used. Yes, yes, yeah. If you are writing, if you are a writer out there and you are writing a book, and there's a kid in it. Do yourself a favor and read this book. Yeah. Because it sh it will show you how you deploy a child. And how you deploy a green beret. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Or not. He has a scar from it. It's bad. I did highlight. He's like, I was a little bit impaled. I know. I was totally like, <laughs> it's not even a sex scene. It's fine. It's just gently impaled. <laughs> I was like, men. So funny. Uh, terrific. Um, 
So anyway, the new book, so we should say this, Natalie's first book is a proposal they can't refuse. It's about the sis, it's about a saint's sister who is a chef um, and the grandfathers make an, an appearance in that book and they like force them into yeah. shenanigans. I mean, these, these meddling matchmaking grandparents. I'm fine with it. I love it. I, again, I'm- a perfect romance trope, perfectly deployed. Um, and then the, this one, obviously the next one, which is called sleeping with the frenemy is also a second chance, kind of like friends to lovers, to enemies, to lovers, romance, um, between Leo, who is Saint's firefighter brother, who is now in recovery after having been shot, uh, to, with his sister's ex best friend. Listen, put it in my veins. Sounds complicated and dramatic, and I'm pre-ordering now. (laughs) Same. I think it's pretty clear that we really loved this one. You should head out if you're looking for new writers, because we all are all the time. Put Natalie on your list. Head out and read this one. Start with the first one, uh, which is a proposal they can't refuse, and then just, like, fall into this whole... Yeah, the the Vega family. And then come see me and Natalie with Nicole Falls in, and there will be another author. I'm sorry, everybody. This is, it's actually really cool. And I don't know, the, I forgot the person's name, so sorry. But in Forest Park, there is an, a romance author who's written some books. So it'll be like a local author, which is cool. Yeah. Well, maybe click on the chapter title right now and it'll take you there. March 16th. Yeah. March 16th. And then a week later, Faded Mates Live in Brooklyn. <gasps> Incredible. I'm so excited. A, a very big month for us. A big month for us. Oh, I have something to talk about. I am, later this month, February 20th, doing a, <laughs> coming virtually to Illinois, to your to your home state. Nice. To Oak Park, which, is that near you? Um, it's, it's a suburb side. Yeah. The Oak Park Library is hosting me and Julia Quinn virtually talk about Bridgerton Fun. and the Regency. So Fun. if you're a Regency fan, if you're a Bridgerton fan, uh, I think by then there will be a full like Bridgerton trailer, which will be exciting. Ooh, exciting. Um, in fact, there may, no, there, it's not, Bridgerton won't be out yet, but we'll be, I think Julia will be able to talk a little more about what's to come in the show. Um, either way, we'll talk about books and recommend books and, and do all that. And it'll be the two of us and it's free. You just have to go to, again, we'll put everything in show notes. You just go and you sign up, you get a ticket, and um, and that should be fun. It should be a fun conversation. And that is February 20th, because of course it is. It is Valentine's week, or close to Valentine's Day. Uh, look around. Listen, if you want to do a romance thing, February is the time to do it. So just, you know... Pay attention on social media. Everybody seems to be doing fun stuff all over the place. Um, I am Sarah McLean. I'm here with my friend Jen Prokop. We are Faded Mates. You can come and see us live in New York City on March 23rd. Find out more information on that at fatedmates.net slash live. Otherwise, you can find us all the time at fatedmates.net. You can find us on Instagram at fatedmatespod, on Twitter at fatedmates, on Blue Sky and that other one threads <laughs> um and also if you really enjoy talking about romance novels 
or you spent this whole episode talking back to us about romance novels, maybe you want to come hang out in our Discord with us and a bunch of other incredibly voracious romance readers. You can do that by joining our Patreon at fatedmates.net slash Patreon. Um, We hope to see you over there. Have a good one, everybody. Bye. Hello, I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop, and this is the Meet Cute Book Pod. Today we have my chat with author Alexis Hall, who you may know from such hits as Boyfriend Material, Glitterland, A Lady for a Duke, The Winter Bakes All series, and many more. He is a genre queer writer of kissing books who lives in Southeast England with his extensive collection of hats and three angry duck children, subsisting entirely on a diet of tea and Jaffa cakes. He has a degree in very hard sums from a university that should by all rights be fictional and can whip up a passable brownie if pressed. Alexis talks about the experience of revisiting his first published novel 10 years later, why all his historical romances so far are set in the Regency, how he managed to write four books releasing this year, his approach to tone, point of view, narrative perspective, and humor in his writing, the complicated business of writing characters who speak in a variety of dialects, what he takes into consideration when writing sex, and, of course, some books he's loved recently. And now, through the magic of podcasting, here's my conversation with Alexis Hall. Thank you so much for joining me for this. I am delighted. To start off as a basic question, your Instagram bio describes you as a genre queer writer of kissing books. What does that mean to you? It's sort of a... Something that's quite important to me is working within what I at least personally perceive as somewhat denigrated modes of fiction. Um, Like, um, you know, I very specifically write genre fiction and I tend to gravitate towards um, the kinds of genres that some people look down on, um, which is why I write romance fantasy a lot. Um, And I obviously write LGBTQ plus fiction um, and I just feel that genre queer writer of kissing books is a sort of a slightly flippant, slightly self-deprecating way of expressing that, that I write LGBTQ plus fiction with a strong genre bentum, as I'm sure you know, I write across genres because I I like genres. I think genres are fun um, that tend to involve kissing, hence kissing books. So you've been a published author writing professionally for 10 years and Sourcebooks recently re-released your first published book, I think, Glitterland, with amendments and annotations. What was it like revisiting a, a book that you had written so long ago? Oh, very weird. Like it's, it's I mean, it's it's you know, it's, it's the literary equivalent of one of those you want to feel old memes, you know. Um, <laughs> like discovering that Viggo Mortensen is now the same age that um, uh, Ian McKellen was when he played Gandalf. Oh, um, no. I know. Like it was a really interesting experience because uh, it's been ten years, and suddenly you have to look back and think about think back into the mindset you were in those days and it's um, uh, it's uh, so it's another way is like you you know how sometimes if you go back to like a place you haven't been in a very long time and there's this sort of this very doubled kind of familiarity alienation you get with it mm-hmm. where um like it's 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 simultaneously like you've never left but also like you were never there so yeah we, sorry that's probably not a not a terribly enlightening answer so yeah weird <laughs> weird and kind of like going back to like your old school or something and was it satisfying to get to 
talk about it in the annotations and like change little things. That's so I'm very much the opinion that books are kind of of a time and place. I think one of the really difficult things about being a published author for 10 years, which means I'm old now. Um, and um, so all my cultural touchstones are slightly kind of a generation out of date. Um, Cause like, do you remember when like the big thing in like cinema was like director's cuts? Mm-hmm. And like, I think there was a, there, there was a phase in like kind of you know, the early 2000s, 2010s-ish where there was this idea that a movie that released in the cinema wasn't the real movie. And that, like, there was this idealized version that was the director's cut, that was the director's pure and true vision um, that would be realized at a later date. Like, you know, I think like, I think George Lucas kind of essentially kind of um, propagated that to a bit. Um, and that's kind of not something I believe. Like I'm very much light of the opinion that, that the, the text is what it is. Something I would absolutely highlights to anyone who already owns a copy of Letterland, who is on a limited book budget, doesn't particularly want a you know, new, shop, new shiny copy with a pretty cover and some entirely optional like bonus content, is that like the changes are incredibly minor. It's mostly just flow stuff. Um, there's like one scene that I extended because back when I started writing, um, there was a very strong feeling in my publisher that like a, a romance shouldn't have anything that's not about the primary couple. Um, so there are, you know, like there's like one scene where I've extended a bit of like friend interaction, but um, it's not huge. Um, but it's not like I don't want to give the impression that this version is like the definitive version or the true version. It's a, it's a slightly cleaned up version, but like the version I wrote then was the version I intended to write. It's not like I accidentally slipped and fell and wrote something else. It was it was fun to go back to it. Um, I, I mean, I think the most fun bit actually, in some ways, was writing like the first chapter of a Rick Glass novel. Um, because because I'm I'm puerile basically. I'm just very very puerile, and I like doing silly stuff like that. But it was really good to go back to that world in that series. So you have been writing for a full decade. Have you noticed any themes in your writing, ideas, or questions that you sort of like keep coming back to? Oh god, that's a, that's one of those odd ones where like that feels like. I can't tell whether talking about themes in one's own writing is self-aggrandizing or damning, um, because you say, "Oh yes, I have like have these themes that I'm very much exploring through my work." It sounds a bit <laughs> up yourself, but if you then the other way to frame it, see, I just I just keep circling back to the same ideas again and again and again. I have a lot of food scenes. Um, is, 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 is a thing that people notice. Um, I often write quite complicated parental relationships. Um, I. I have a tendency to, and this is um, I'm a professional word user, so I try to be quite careful with my language. I tend to like writing unsympathetic or complicated protagonists. I like the, um, I sometimes express it in an oversimplified way as like, I like the idea that everybody deserves love. And I think that's a powerful idea, but also I find the word deserve actually a little bit awkward. Um, like I think, um, I think talking about what people deserve is kind of meaningless. I don't think like that's arbitrary, you know, people that intrinsically deserve or not deserve things um but i think i think people who feel they are undeserving of love and come to overcome that feeling is a thing i come back to a lot it's why a lot of my protagonists are dickheads um and if they aren't a dickhead then quite often the romantic interest is a dickhead which you know itself that goes to some complicated places i'm sure um oh dear um it's it gets very difficult because one doesn't want to overanalyze oneself, I think. No, let's talk <laughs> instead about, instead of constant themes, what about things that have shifted? Like what is catching your interest now? Oh, good Lord. I mean, so I'm, 
I'm very, very uh, flighty is the word I would use. I'm very, very flighty, very, very kind of um, easily distracted, I think. Um, so what's catching my, my interest right now is kind of whatever's happening right now, whatever I'm seeing right now, whatever I'm thinking about right now. And that's um, that genuinely can vary day to day. Like you're currently rewatching Succession, for example. So I'm thinking about that quite a lot. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of like modern geopolitics shit that's kind of playing on my mind at the moment because uh, there's a lot of that going on so yeah i'm kind of just thinking about the last thing i saw or the last thing i read kind of constantly so you've got four books out this year yes. um two of them are historicals and you also had a historical as part of a different series out last year yes. um did you always want to write historicals I mean, basically, yes, is the, is the short answer. Uh, short answer, basically, yes. Long answer, depends what you mean by want to. Like, it, it's not like I am, um, it's not like this is like the thing I truly want to do and the other <laughs> stuff was just like filler or something. It's, um, I've always, I've always wanted to do a bit of everything. I've always really loved historicals because like, yes, pretty dresses, pretty dresses are cool. It's been difficult um, for a number of reasons, partly because, um, so I've been doing this for 10 years. And something I fought very hard for from the beginning was to not <laughs> to not have a brand, which was a, a an excellent way to, to to launch a career. I kind of tried to, from the very beginning, establish myself as someone who would work in a lot of genres, do a lot of different things. Um, but <laughs> that only works to a degree, and there is like you can't you can't do 10 books that are in 10 different subgenres. that really does tank you so i did have to pace myself a little bit um and so i've been kind of throwing around like historical ideas for a very very long time um and it's kind of never quite come together um i think it's a i think it's a complicated concatenation of things in that partly um particularly with uh, historical romance there was for a long time a perception that historical romance is one of the more conservative romance subgenres mm -hmm. um and there are you know i have there are quite famous quotes by quite famous authors uh to the extent that they like kind of don't like the idea of lgbtq plus people or people of color for that matter in um as protagonists in romance novels because in historical romance novels because um because part of the definition of genre romance is it needs to have a happy ending and they just cannot imagine a person who isn't a heterosexual white woman having a happy ending in a historical society Oof. and that <laughs> I disagree with, funnily enough. Um, that goes to some complex places. I um, I think people have a tendency to be willing, when people are writing historical things, I think people have a tendency to be willing to overlook historical oppressions that would have affected them and less willing to overlook historical oppressions that would affect, that might affect other people. Um, like you see it, you see it similarly with, with like your historically accurate sexism in fantasy. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so, um, so that was part of the challenge of positioning a, a historical romance that worked within my preferred style of writing um and of course the other thing is bridgerton so it's, it's genuinely got to the stage where people who are outside of like romland i've genuinely heard the word bridgerton used as a sort of a a generic genre label for histrom people like specifically say like oh this is a bridgerton thing and you're like oh, i mean yes but also no <laughs> yeah well uh, we get i mean all of the Basically, any Regency romance that comes out is getting pitched as like, it's just like Bridgerton. They can't all be just like Bridgerton. Like Bridgerton. No, like Bridgerton is a very specific thing. Um, I mean, one of the things that's particularly complex with that, of course, is that like, if you're a fan of the TV show, then 
to some extent, the Bridgerton books aren't that much like Bridgerton. You know, and that's one of those complicated ones. Like, I think one of the things that's difficult about any of them I started off talking about is you know, big fan of genres, love genres. But I think it's also really important to recognize that the genres are arbitrary. Genres aren't made up to sell books. And particularly working in romance, that's complicated because, again, romance is, very, is a denigrated genre. I would argue it's still a denigrated genre. I think it's, um, you occasionally get like think pieces called things like How Gen Z Made Romance Cool, which is sort of simultaneously affirming and also a bit of a slap in the face to everyone that's been like, you know, reading and loving that genre for fucking decades. So obviously, particularly romance as a genre is incredibly important to a lot of people. But also, there is uh, a need to... I think there is a need to acknowledge that, that genres are a little bit arbitrary. Um, and one of the things you do notice is, that, yes, when a, when a thing gets popular, people sell everything as being like that thing. You, know, you had it with... Um, with 50 and suddenly all erotic romance was basically being packaged as if it was 50. You have it with um with rom-com and like kind of all contemporary romance gets packaged as rom-com. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, now basically all history is getting packaged as British. And something I'm probably overly paranoid about is giving readers false expectations. Mm-hmm. People will like or dislike a book partly depending on what they were expecting it to be, which is unfair and not something that the author has any control over. But I, I see it happening all the time. No, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a really complex one because it's simultaneously like as an author, one feels it's very unfair. But as a reader, I've sometimes had like kind of, oh, this book was not what I expected. And that kind mm-hmm. of makes me feel bad. Um, and it's, again, it's particular if you are writing about marginalized people that like the stakes on that are elevated. You know, if you are a woman for whom romance has a genre written by women for women, it's very important to you. Then reading a romance novel that doesn't match your expectations of what romance should be, I'm sure that can be a painful experience. Um, Simply, if you are an LGBTQIA plus person and you are reading LGBTQIA plus fiction and it doesn't reflect your experiences or doesn't speak to you in the way that you've maybe been told it will speak to you, that can be a profoundly harmful experience. Um, And that's like that is a responsibility I take seriously while also having to maintain a sense of perspective on and that's fun. Um, because like, you know, you can't let that get to in your head, but also, um, these things do matter. Um, I think in terms of reader expectation of historical in particular, I think, um, one of the things I found really interesting actually is that, um, like responses to something, something, or uh, you know, to, to something fabulous and to something spectacular, kind of, I think weirdly changed once I had more than one historical out, because uh, as, as, as you've said, like every historical is packaged as Bridgerton and there is this tendency to sort of particularly in this milieu to sell everything it's kind of the same thing like i am very aware that the something something series is doing something a little bit unusual arguably within historical in that it is like it is really steering hard into being self-consciously anachronistic like it it gives zero fucks i think something i've mentioned a lot is that my single favorite like review tagline from that series is i believe someone referred to it as a a glorious shit post of a book and you know it is it is intentionally joyously silly. It is intentionally joyously really not caring about historicity in basically any way. And I think a lot of people looked at that and were like, kind of, well, this person just doesn't know how to write a historical. Um, and obviously, um, a Lady for Duke is a lot more of a traditional history in that regard. It's got a lot more kind of, you know, actual details about Waterloo and things. Um, and a lot more kind of, you know, making sure the dresses are right. Um, and people not using quite as much self-consciously anachronistic language like all the time. Um, and I think once <laughs> once people had seen that that was a thing I could also do, I think they were more willing to um, like read intentionality into the Something Something series. That's so interesting. It feels clear to me from reading it that it is it, it was on purpose. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 an odd one. Um, I think I think it's even like a, an author's note at the beginning saying like yeah. this is self consciously anachronistic um, because I was aware that people would be like this is weird. So you have those two, and then Mortal Follies, which is coming out in June, is a mm-hmm. historical fantasy, but also set in the Regency. Yes. How have you approached researching and world building for three sort of parallel Regencies? Interesting. Um, so. I don't like talking about research. Uh, again, I'm really, really paranoid about something coming off self-aggrandizing, but I think particularly like, you know, I am not a historian. I am not um, a specialist or an expert. Um, like, I don't do anything special that a regular person couldn't do. And as I kind of specifically said, like, you know, the Something Something series is deliberately and self-consciously anachronistic. It's not supposed to be accurate. So to some extent, like kind of whatever research I did there was partly just for stuff to play with. And I would absolutely never recommend anybody learn history from my books. That would be weird. Learn history from historians. I'm very, I'm, I'm flighty, as I think I said at the start. I, um, I jump around topic to topic a lot, and I like learning about stuff. So I, I, me, I read books about history, and I, uh, I think the important thing to recognise is that when I'm doing research for a historical book, what I will do is I will find a bit of the history that I find interesting, and I will kind of, I will sometimes skim it, I will sometimes deep dive it, I will sometimes read whole books about it, I will sometimes, you know quickly google it just to make sure i've got like you know, times and places and dates right i will you know sometimes look at kind of actual period documents to get a sense of how people were like you know, what people were doing in bath and what the like you know, what the, the rules were at the assembly rooms i'll sometimes check out fashion plates for what kind of um like styles of dresses people were wearing um I'm, one of the things I try to be, I'm occasionally a little bit anal about is like, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to put an 1816 dress on an 1814 character. That would be oh, God forbid. I know. Um, but also, please don't learn history from my books. Um, like, and I'm, I'm very, very conscious of the, um, like the use of historicity as, as a means of validating fiction or as a means of, or as a means of invalidating fiction. And like, I think none of these books are really about the regency they are set in the regency um they sometimes reference specific things that happened in the regency and sometimes don't but i'm very much of the opinion that books are about the time they're written in like you know julius caesar is primarily about elizabethan england it's not Mm -hmm. really particularly about rome i think there's a reference to a clock in it and you know my books are really about the world i live in it's like secretly spoiler they're not really i'm not i'm partly because like what would be I think one could, if one wanted to, genuinely try and write a book about the past in the style of the books of the past, trying to get into the mindset of audiences of the past. But I, and I think it would be, maybe it would be an interesting intellectual exercise, but I don't think it would be particularly meaningful to a modern audience. You know, because I, I'm not from the early 19th century and neither are my readers. Most of them, at least. Most of them. <laughs> The Regency is sort of a fabled genre romance era, but what is it about the Regency that ended up having all three series set there? I mean, part of it is because they are three very different series. Um, as you say, the Regency is a, a fabled genre romance setting, and it's um, so it's so part of it is it's kind of the default setting, and particularly when you're um, something I talk about a lot. Um, particularly somebody who writes LGBTQ plus fiction, is I talk about um, what I tend to refer to as the one but rule, which is to say um, when you are writing, when you're pitching a book. And you, if you want people to pick it up, this is my my own slightly pretentious name for a very well well documented phenomenon. It's that's like you kind of have to be able to describe it as it's like this popular thing, but this. 
And first of all, when you're writing LGBTQ plus fiction, your butt's kind of already taken care of a lot of the time. Not always, um, because as that type of fiction has become more mainstream, you're actually able to say it's like this existing LGBT thing, but different in this way that isn't that it's got gay people in it. But in general, when you because this, these these were these three things because they're all slightly different, were all kind of my first forays into doing historical. I think I wanted to go for kind of a legitimizing setting with all of them. And I think particularly like for each one, there's kind of a there's a slightly more specific reason than that, but that's the general. I mean, to, to go briefly, slightly more specific for something, something, it's so bonkers that it needed to be in a familiar setting. And also it was genuinely the first histrom I got out there. So I went for the default histrom setting. For A Lady for a Duke, um, this one gets complicated. I tried, when people ask me what I'm doing with A Lady for a Duke, I try to be very, very clear because one, something I said earlier in the interview is that if you are a marginalized person, particularly if you're a trans person, not feeling represented by something that's trying, that is purporting to represent you can feel quite hurtful. And that's not an experience I want people to have with my books. So I try to be very clear what I'm doing with A Lady for a Duke. And what I wanted A Lady for a Duke to be was a completely traditional historical romance novel which affirms that trans women are women. And that is the only thing I would claim it does. I've had longer conversations where I've talked about kind of um, something I think quite strongly about public discourse is that the way to win arguments isn't to have arguments, it's to have the next argument that assumes you won the previous argument. And part of what I'm trying to do with Lady for Duke is write a book in which there is a trans woman and she's just a woman um, and she does all the stuff that women do in those books. And that meant that I very consciously picked a very, very, very traditional setting for that book. So it is set in the Regency. It has a Duke. It has all of the beats that those kinds of books have, because it's about affirming by never questioning that a trans woman can be part of that and that that isn't taking something away from or threatening or undermining cis womanhood. It's just like fucking normal. And for Mortal Follies, um, that was the one that I did actually start after Bridgerton became a thing. So that was very consciously, what if Bridgerton, but magic? Sold, would buy, sounds delightful. Exactly. Um, that's, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> um, and like, I, think, I think I'll also say that I do also genuinely, like, I think... I think the other thing I say about the Regency is that um, I think I sort of find the Regency second level fascinating because it's simultaneously so big in, in genre fiction, um, almost exclusively because of Austin, as far as I can tell. Um, but maybe not. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff going on. But like, Austin and Shaft, there's a Napoleonic era as well, isn't there? Um, if you go outside of romance. But it's actually like the actual, actual Regency is like six years. It's like 1814 to 1820. If you're being, I know, I'll admit this is being a little bit like kind of a little bit nitpicky about terminology because obviously, like, George III had his issues for a while and probably wasn't much in control of anything for a while. But, you know, Prince George was formally appointed the Prince Regent in 1814. That ended in uh, 1820. And so that that's the Regency. It's six years. And it's sort of, it's fascinating to me that this tiny, tiny, tiny fragment of history, especially because, you know, most, Regency romances are about the ton. So this tiny, tiny fragment of history and this tiny, tiny group of people is such a, a huge thing. Um, it is also genuinely a, a really interesting time um, because you're you're just at the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, like not quite like you're um like not you know, you're, we're not into the Victorian. So like we're pre-Victorian, 
but we're post-American Revolution, we're post-French Revolution. So there is a lot of social upheaval, there's a lot of cultural upheaval. We're about seven years out from um, Britain formally abolishing the slave trade, but well away from Britain kind of actually abolishing slavery in the empire, which is a completely different thing. That's decades down the line. The Corn Laws happen, like, kind of in the middle of it. There's a whole lot of stuff going on in the Regency that isn't pretty dresses. Um, oh, and of course, um, like Napoleon, like, kind of gets defeated, like, the very beginning, and then kind of comes back for like a, like a season two cameo. Um, like, it's just, yeah, it has, there's so much going on with, um, with, with the Regency. It's a genuinely fascinating period. And the more you look into it, the more you realize that, holy crap, there's a lot of shit going on. And obviously, then follows you, then throw magic on top of that, and that's fun because you get to look at you get go into weird deep dives. But like, but like part of the um, like the base, like the basic. So the the core inspiration for that was knowing that Bath curse tablets were a thing, basically, and wanted to do something with Regency Bath and curse tablets, because yeah, history is fun and complex and interconnected. Um, and I am not an expert, and you shouldn't learn it from my books. So. You have four books out this year. You have Glitterland, which was a re-release, but still presumably required you to do, you know, some work. Yeah. Um, you had Something Spectacular, which just came out, Mortal Follies, which is coming out in June, and 10 Things That Never Happened, which is in the boyfriend material world that comes out this fall. You keep a blog. You write Goodreads reviews, which I personally find very helpful. And you are also piloting a Discord as like a Twitter alternative. And you have another job. How... How? How? Uh, by accident, basically. I mean, so like the day job, I have way scaled back on. Like, I started working from home over lockdown. I've cut down my hours a lot, and probably my intent is to like genuinely can that as long as the um uh, once the like the the writing is <laughs> once I, once I've stopped being terrified that the writing is going to go away overnight, which is a thing that I think everyone who works in creative industry gets to some extent. The blog I have actually put on hiatus. Um, I, so sort of, I, I, you might have noticed that I've actually kind of unpublished it because I didn't like having it hanging there as a thing that I never update um, because it was getting, I was going like, oh, I should be updating stuff for the blog, but I, uh, I've got this stuff to do and it's, it's just getting really in my head. Other than that, um, like, I want to make really clear that this is not an aspirational situation. This is not something I am doing because I have like a great work ethic. Um, I, to some extent, have a problem with the concept of work ethics. Like, I mean, like that goes to some interesting class places. Um, like the reason that, like, the reason I have wound up like this is because in about 2020, one of my books got more popular than my books had previously been, and that meant I went from being in a position where I was sending out like five or six submissions and getting four or five rejections to being in a position where I was sending out four or five submissions and getting four or five acceptances. And also someone else saying, hey, will you do this for us? We'd like to work with you. Um, and because I am concerned about things going away overnight, um, because, you know, audiences are fickle, markets are complex, um, yeah, things change. And like, yeah, this is, you know, this isn't a salaried gig. Um, I was like, well, I should probably say yes to all of this. And that, uh, I don't think it was a mistake. But I do think it has had consequences that I am now dealing with. Um, so I kind of, I kind of don't have social life. Um, as as I say, my sleep patterns are completely screwed. Like I, I, I kind of don't really sleep that much or that sensibly. Um, I, this isn't like the the thing I'm most concerned about is people seeing this as aspirational. Um, and there are, yeah, I think, I think there are genuinely writers who do genuinely have a really high output that is kind of 
actually a, a stable working thing for them. But that's not that's not where I am. Like I want to be writing fewer books. I just also want to, you know, have an income. And that meant not wanting to look gift horses in the mouth when suddenly about six different gift horses showed up. Do you have any like good strategies for managing to avoid burnout? I, 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 not really. I think, um, I think I have a general principle that you can do most things as long as you know they're finite. Um, and yeah, that's as always. That's going to be that's not going to be true for everyone. But that's how I tend to tend to to go. I how I tend to position myself. I think so. I think just kind of knowing that. Once I've got through this chunk of things, I can take a bit of a breather. It is kind of keeping me stable at the moment, but it's it, it is difficult. Um, I you know I don't have strategies to stop it getting on top of me because it does sometimes get a bit on top of me, and I think it's you know it would be I think misleading and disingenuous to suggest that it doesn't. Yeah, I mean I think that's personal. That's personally relatable, at least. So I want to talk a little bit about the writing in your books, the tone in. Your book shifts really significantly. I I think from one to another, you have some books that are much lighter rom-coms like Boyfriend Material. And then you have this delightful sort of paranormal detective series that's very noir, um, Kate Kane. And mm-hmm. then you have A Lady for a Duke, which feels quieter maybe, but still has humor in it. Um, and they all have an underlying sort of consistency of voice, but they are distinct. How do you sort of hop around? How do you find the voice or the tone of a new a new project that you're working on? That's one of those really difficult, like kind of you just kind of do it question, which I is not the kind that's the kind of answer I hate to give because I hate being mystifying. I hate things that suggest that the process cannot be explained. But I do think that's something you just kind of have to feel your way through. And some of it's something. So I write in genres, and so a lot of it is just kind of I'm. So I feel like has got quite a noir tone. I've watched a lot of noir. Read a certain amount of hard world fiction, um, and you can kind of internalize that. Um, similarly, Lady for Duke is very consciously inspired by very specific classic historical romances of the late 20th, late 21st century. Boyfriend material is, the tone of boyfriend material is kind of the tone of a a Richard Curtis movie, Um, which I, now I say it loud, it sounds like I'm saying I just nick it from people, which is not, I'm, and to an extent, like, you know, great artists steal and all that, but um, I think having touchstones in your head that you can kind of go to for roughly how you want it to sound is i think about right Mm -hmm. yeah no that makes sense so in addition to picking sort of like the overall tone or language what do you take into consideration when you're thinking about whose point of view the story or points of view the story will be from and do you want this to be first person narration third person narration so it'll it'll sometimes be sometimes it's a a matter of pure genre convention um so again if you're writing something in a noir style that's Sort of, it's a, it's a funny one actually because um like there's a uh, the cat game books are written in first person because there there's something about first person narration that feels noir I think because we kind of associate voiceovers with noir cinema even though actually you read for example a lot of um Dashiell Hammett that's usually written in third person um by Molly Falcon is written in third person it depends on the relationship I want the reader to have with the character um there are some characters uh, and to the like the relationship I want the reader to have with the the text. Actually, a really good example. This might be the um. Uh, so in the in the uh, baking series, there's a starts with Rosalind Palmer takes a cake, um, and goes on from there. I kind of consciously wanted that to almost feel like you're watching an episode of a reality TV show. 
So it's done in third person. It's on third person, but a slightly less close POV than I would normally do third person narration. Uh, the, the Boyfriend Material series, that's done in first person. I'm not necessarily going to keep that up. I will almost certainly keep that throughout the whole series, but I'm not going to like wed myself to that. Um, notably, actually, um, I think there's samples you can already see this in. I've specifically done 10 Things That Never Happened in uh, first person and present tense because it felt right for the the like the way I wanted that story to be told. I wanted it to have more of a sense of immediacy. So when you're calibrating or figuring out how you're telling a news story, how do you think about humor as an element of that? And how do you figure out how much or what kind of humor you want to fit into that narrative? So again, partly it's going to be genre touchstones. Like if I'm writing a, and although again, this, this becomes a complex one. So one of the things we talked about was everything's kind of getting sold as Bridgerton these days. And like um, when rom-com got big, there was this kind of everything's being sold as rom-com thing. But if I'm writing a rom-com, I kind of want it to feel like a, like a romantic comedy, like a, um, you know, like a, you know, you go on Richard Curtis type thing. So I want it to be like actively kind of comedy level funny. If I'm writing a more traditional histrom, um, then I might want some elements of humor in it. I think levity is nice. I think being you know, relentlessly grimdark all the time isn't particularly enjoyable. And having I mean, comic relief seems such a basic way to put it, but basically, but you do want elements of levity in text. Like there are some of my series that I think definitely have a like deliberate whimsy too. Like um like you know Kate Kane series has like elements of deliberate quite dark comedy to it. Um the something something series again it's like that is sort of deliberately set in an exaggeratedly comedic world. Other series are more grounded but have some some funny elements. It's it's about playing it by ear. It's about mental touchstones is a, a phrase that I'm pulling off the top of my head right now that I think is possibly possibly useful. Again, go back to um, uh, the Bacon series, like that, the humour in that is kind of on the level of the humour you get in reality TV shows, um, particularly, particularly the kind of British reality TV show where you'll often have a slightly detached narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have better reality TV than we do, I think. It's different, at least. It's it's interesting. It's like because it's because a lot of it's franchised, like, and so I think a lot of it is because like like the um like like the Idol series, and I think the um the X has got talent series. I think we exported to you. Like I like Simon Simon Cowles over there, isn't he? Yeah, you exported a whole person. Yeah, we, yeah, um, and I think I think we imported the Apprentice from you. Well, obviously, Apprentice has different different connotations now for Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, Shark Tank in this country, Dragons Den. I think that's actually a Japanese import. It's called Dragon's Den there? In, in the UK, it's called Dragon's Den, yeah. Huh. Do you not Which have I, sharks? I, I, I don't know. I think, I, I, I think Dragon's Den is cooler, personally. I think also, like, <laughs> like dragons have a wealth connotation, which sharks don't. That's true. Like, why would you go into it? Like, there's nothing in a shark tank apart from a shark. Yeah, maybe they just wanted our version to sound uh, meaner. It might, it might also genuinely be a... Um, uh, Copyright. A copyright thing or trademark thing, like um, like like um, the reason that um the Great British Baking Show is called the Great British Baking Show in America is because Bake Off is someone's registered trademark. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it. So you also have an ability to really deftly sketch a character that feels real in very little sort of real estate on a page, which feels like you have to therefore sort of know who that person is really well. Do you have favorite ways of getting to know characters as you're writing? I think I mean, one thinks about one's characters. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, 
I feel really bad for not having tricks um, because I feel like people tune to this kind of thing. And they're like, oh, I want a trick for how to do this. Um, and there isn't really one apart from um, just kind of you know, thinking authentically, I suppose, having a sense of where this person's coming from. I think one of the things that um, oh, I'm, oh, so the slight, uh, this isn't a trick. This is a thing that I can, I can get asked about names and why characters are called certain things. And very often when I'm naming a character, I will very specifically, and this this comes back to the thing we were saying earlier about, about themes and stuff I go back to, um, very often, if I'm naming a character, for example, my go-to thought will be, what sort of people were this person's parents and therefore what sort of name will they have given them? Like, um, you know, like like Arden St. Ives' <laughs> mother is the kind of person who would call a kid Arden St. Ives. Um, you know, Luke O'Donnell has a um, French first name and an Irish surname and is very specifically uses his mother's surname, not his father's and so on. And, and so on and so forth and so forth. Um, and it's, it's, it's little things like that. I'm... Um, in terms of getting characters across very quickly on page, I think that's one thing that is much easier to do in a comic setting because you can exaggerate stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the advantages of humour is you can give someone a really obvious kind of tick or tell or hook that people can... Which, again, we say oh, that sounds really artificial, but it's, it's a thing because, like you say, limited real estate, you've got to get quite a large cast of characters across very fast. I mean, there's a, a shorthand, I guess, and then you can sort of fill them in backwards as, as exactly. it goes on. I am interested in the question of writing in dialects, which pops up periodically in your books. It pops up in Glitterland. It pops up in Rosalind Palmer Takes the Cake, which is one of the Bake Off baking show books. What is your sort of goal in transcribing speech in the way that you're doing? Like, what what are you trying to get across? What are you thinking about in the ways that you're transcribing it? This could go on for a very long time because this is a really complex topic. So there's actually two things here, one of which is writing in dialect and the other of which is uh, transcribing dialect because those are slightly different things. Um, in terms of writing in dialect, um, 10 things that never happened, the narrator's counselor, it's written as best I can in a quite a strongly Liverpudlian dialect. I care very strongly about linguistic diversity. I care very strongly about... One of the things that's really difficult um, about writing about Britishness to a primarily American audience is that Americans have, I think, a very fixed idea of what being British means. And it's really important to me that actually British means a whole lot more than that. Particularly, like when you, like when you say a British accent to an American, they mean something, they mean an RP accent. They like, mm-hmm. they, or they assume you mean an RP accent, they have an accent like the one that I use by default because it was the accent I was taught to have. But the, the notion that one way of speaking is superior to another way of speaking when it's your fucking native language is both classist and racist. Um, it's not a good thing to support. Um, so I do try to incorporate characters who speak in a variety of different dialects um, as a way of reflecting those characters and those cultures as best I understand them. And to do so in a way that I hope comes across as validating and respectful rather than as dismissive. And that is really tricky. Like, um, like I think the, the, like the way I wrote dialects in Glitterland was probably the most extreme transcribing of dialect that I've done. Like, actually, I think the, um, the Glitterland versus Rosalind Palmer things are a really interesting comparison. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm now saying that things about my books are really interesting. So the thing about Glitterland is because it's very embedded in Ash's perspective. And Ash ultimately was raised in a culture that says certain ways of talking are just wrong. And therefore, the transcription of Darian's dialect is very, if, like it focuses on pretty much every deviation from standard pronunciation, um, which is something I usually don't do when I'm writing 
Oh yeah, right. One of the things that's um, there's, there's sorry, there's really sorry. This is a bit of a can of worms. There's a whole lot of complicated politics with this. Where um, one of the things that's really difficult about transcribing dialects is that English is not a phonetically spelt language. I mean, it can't be because like there are there are you know, there's, there's a saying that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, and there are you know quite large countries with armies and navies, all of whom have English as like their native language. But it means that when you transcribe somebody's dialect, you are effectively saying that their way of pronouncing words isn't the default. Mm-hmm. Which is awkward. So dialect blurs into idiolect blurs into accent in a bunch of complicated ways. When it's just dialectal terms, like just words that appear in a dialect that don't appear in in standard English, that's very straightforward. Like you just you just write the word. When it is a non-standard pronunciation, that becomes more complicated because most English words. I say mostly. That's a generalization. Okay? Quite a lot of English words aren't actually pronounced anything like they're written. And there are some, just some really simple examples of this. Like uh, if you're writing someone from the North, there's no really standard way to transcribe the fact that Northern people use a short A um, in, in, in what we call short A. It's like, I can never tell whether the American, I think the American A sound is different from both the British long A and the British short A, but like you can't really transcribe the bath-bath distinction. Like that's just not a distinction that, that makes, that you could put on page without doing like some kind of diacritic mark. But then there are variations in pronunciation that tend to get transcribed when they are delivered in certain dialects, but not in others. And that goes to difficult places. So I'm in uh, Rosenbaum Gate, for example. I made a quite conscious decision to have Harry's speech spell the word my, M-Y, even though Harry definitely says me, like mm. talking to my brother, that kind of thing. But I think, and I could be wrong about this, but my the reason I made that choice is that actually vowel sounds are kind of ambiguous. And actually, if you're going to say, you know, I'm going to go see my mum, like the the my in that is like it's a me, it's a m, it's a m, it's a, it's a, it's an ambiguous vowel sound. It's probably a schwa, and therefore. I think the most authentic way to write to transcribe that speech is just to write the fucking word my, which is the word they are saying, and not try to communicate that they have that they happen to have pronounced it in a way that isn't posh. A really, really good example of this is um, uh, is a gunner. Everyone says gunner. Um, there are recordings of David fucking Cameron saying gunner. But when you look at the transcriptions of those recordings, it's transcribed as going to, because David Cameron is a posh man. Same with, same with um, uh, Boris Johnson. If Boris Johnson is giving a speech where, about Brexit, where he says kind of, and it's going to be difficult, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, sorry, that's my really bad Boris Johnson impression. That will be transcribed as it's going to be difficult, because Boris Johnson you know, is a posh man who went to eat, and so obviously he wouldn't have used a slang word, but he does. He does say gunner because everyone says gunner because like it's just it's just a natural feature of how language works. Similarly, same with me versus my. I don't think every person with an RP accent always says my, pronouncing the Y correctly. And so that's that's the line I tried to walk there. It's between making it clear that this person is using a dialect and has an accent while also not trying to reinforce the norm that words written down must imply that those words are pronounced in uh, the prestige way. Um, I think I 
think I can't remember. Sorry, it's been a while since I've looked at the actual text rules, and I think I did something similar with H, where I didn't, um, I didn't signal H dropping again. Harry would almost certainly drop his H's. He'd almost certainly call himself Harry, but. H dropping is it used to be part of prestige pronunciation. It used to be considered very vulgar in British English to say a hotel and not any hotel. But when people say, and you'll see in, in like texts from the early 20th century, you'll see people writing any hotel, but they'll spell hotel with an H because it is just kind of, it is understood that the correct pronunciation of the word hotel is hotel and that one should not ever aspirate one's H's. There is like a theory that the when Americans are performing Shakespeare, it makes less sense to try to put on sort of an RP accent because the original pronunciation at the time would have been closer to what a current American accent is. It's interesting. I, 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 the whole like thing of British accents as it relates to anything historical is so bizarre. It's like um, it's like when you see Romans in TV shows, like a Roman with an American accent. I think people would would feel was weird. <laughs> Whereas a Roman with a British, a modern British accent, that's completely normal, obviously. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's, I briefly looked at, looked at uh, it's, it's called OP, as I know, original pronunciation. Um, I've heard that it's like some states in America. I've heard that it's a bit like Birmingham. But yeah, no, but it's, but it's definitely not. Yeah, Shakespeare definitely did not sound like me and definitely didn't sound like, oh, I was going to say the Queen. Obviously, I've, uh, obviously, the Queen doesn't sound like anything anymore. Doesn't sound like the King. One of the things I find really difficult about, because I'm talking a lot about history and language because it's something I care quite strongly about, um, like the the unthinking way in which we ascribe antiquity and authenticity to essentially to my way of speaking is something I am deeply pissed off about, essentially. Like, we fucking shouldn't. I'm also interested in writing sex and sex scenes. And what are you thinking about or taking into consideration when you're thinking through both how much or how sort of explicit of a sex scene to put on the page in any given book? And how do you approach writing those scenes? So, uh, so, so, the, the, so the how much question um, circles back to the, it's going to be different by genre, it's going to be different by subgenre, it depends on what the expectations of the audience are. So for example, boyfriend material tends to be quite, I, I don't like the heat language, I don't like talking about it being high heat, low heat, I think that goes to some complex places. But having said that, to use that language anyway, like, Boyfriend material sample tends to be seen as quite low heat because it's inspired by romantic comedies, which tend not to have much explicit on screen se- on screen sex. In terms of actually writing sex scenes, for me, it's important that sex is a form of characterization. Um, mm-hmm. I try to avoid like there's a like there used to be kind of a running joke in romance that like kind of you just kind of have sex because you've got to that percentage in the book. Like you could you could almost predict if you're a very prolific romance reader where in the book the sex scene would be just by flowing through because it's sort of seen as a, a, a mandatory thing. For me, it's important that sex is, is characterization. It is a form of interaction between characters and it is supposed to say something. Um, it is supposed to say who those people are, how they are relating to each other, where they both are, although particularly where the primary viewpoint character is in that moment, why they're making the choices they're making, how they are feeling about you know, themselves, their partner, and whatever the, whatever the plot is at the moment. And I, I hope I do that. What is sort of like the, what are the joys of writing a sex scene and what are the challenges there? Oh, blimey. Um, so the challenges are making sure it is communicating character. The joys are also making sure it's communicating character. It's, um, I think I try to avoid thinking of sex scenes as distinct from other scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, a writing a sex scene ideally should be no different from writing a scene where the characters do kind of anything else i mean i mean obviously there are there are logistical issues like you need to make sure that everyone's got the right number of hands 
Yeah, in, in that regards, I think I've, I've occasionally said the sex scenes are a bit like fight scenes, like because they involve practical issues where they involve a certain amount of physical movement. People often ask about like our biggest writing challenges and things, and the thing I will always say is that the most the most challenging thing in writing for me is essentially trivial detail. It's thing. It's the, the example I always give is getting someone to go from standing by a door to go and stand by a window because, like, what can you say? You say, you know. She went from standing by the door to stand by the window. She walked from the door to the window. There's only a finite way, number of ways to say it, and they all sound a bit crap when you focus on them. And in the same way, like if there are unique challenges to sex scenes, it's that kind of mundane stuff. It's that kind of okay, like I, I cannot, I can only use the word hand or the word tongue so many times in this scene before it starts sounding repetitious, which is ironically a very unsexy challenge. Is there anything that you have been thinking about writing or really wanting to write? Obviously, you don't have to say what it is, but something that scares you or that you haven't like quite figured out how to write yet, but that you're like tinkering with? Not really. And partly because, I mean, as, as we've discussed, uh, I have got so much backed up that I really can't. I, I've actually had to like have kind of stop myself tinkering because normally, normally I do tinker a bit. Um, I'll kind of be like, oh, I've got this cool idea. I'll dash down a couple of thousand words, see if it goes anywhere. You know, maybe get my you know, agent to wang it off for someone because, you know, I am low on, but no, at the moment I'm like, what I am scared about is the the many, many books I still have to write this year, essentially. Tinkering hiatus. Yes, I'm, I'm very much on a tinkering hiatus. Before I let you go, could you recommend a book or two that you have read recently and really loved? I absolutely could. Um, obviously, the first thing I'll say is I will direct people to my Goodreads um, because, like, the part of the reason I do Goodreads in the first place is so that I can can remind myself of the, of the books I've read because otherwise I do forget. Uh, so I've just finished reading uh, A Trans Man Walks Into a Gay Bar, which is a really it's a really moving, really insightful memoir about a gay trans man. It's not a it's it's got it's got painful moments, but it's not a trauma narrative. Like one of the things that's like, I think pretty much every trans biography I've read has opened with like, well, I find it annoying that the only kind of books that trans people are allowed to write is biographies about our sad personal experiences. But that's the reality we live in. So here's mine. Um, and, but it's it's genuinely um, it's insightful. It's moving. Um, it's not actually particularly sad. It's very very smart. It's actually genuinely quite joyous. It's really good. I've also really enjoyed She is a Haunting, um, which is a it's a queer YA horror about a Vietnamese girl raised in the US. She returns to Vietnam, spends summer with her father, who left the family behind, and they renovate a former French colonial mansion. Uh, it's it's a dark but fascinating uh, piece of horror writing that, funnily enough, has colonialism themes. French colonial mansion, and also because colonialism is you know, based into every aspect of every country in the world, because it was a whole big thing for a really long time. Those sound fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time in your very, very busy schedule to chat with me. I really appreciate it. No, that is okay. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. A huge thank you to Alexis Hall for graciously adding our conversation to an already unreasonable schedule. It was truly a delight. If this conversation has made you want to pick up one or several of his books, you can do that in our shop or on our website, meetcutebookshop.com. And that's all for this episode of the Meet Cute Book Pod. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California, and I hope you'll tune back in for more deep dives into romance writing, reading, and publishing.